Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Now, here's the host of WP Tonic, Jonathan Dinwood and John Locke. Welcome to WP Tonic, episode 174. Today we're talking planning for large-scale web projects. Before we get into today's episode, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Liquid Web. While Liquid Web has been known for many years as a managed hosting company with tons of options, recently they've designed a managed WordPress offering that's perfect for mission-critical sites. So if you're looking for improved performance, maximized uptime, and incredible support, Liquid Web is the partner that you've been looking for. Now, every Liquid Web managed WordPress customer also has iThemes Sync integrated into their management portal. And this allows you to update several sites with a single touch. So if you sign up today using the discount code WPTONIC33, you'll get a 33% discount for the next six months. So visit liquidweb.com slash WordPress to get started and use that discount code WPTONIC33. With that, we'll get into uh, introducing the panel. And uh, Kim, who are you? I'm Kim Schivler. I teach people how to build WordPress websites, online courses, and membership platforms. Excellent. Sally? Sally Getch, the WP fangirl, and I build WordPress websites for small businesses and nonprofits. Excellent. Jonathan? Oh, hey there, folks. I'm the founder of WP Tonic and the co-host with John. We're your trusted partner for keeping your website secure, updated, and doing all those jobs that you really don't want to do. Excellent. And I'm John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design, and I help blue-collar companies with custom WordPress development and local SEO. Uh, Before we get into today's main topic, we have a trio of news stories. The first one, uh, Clef, uh, which is a uh, plugin for WordPress that basically helps with two-factor authentication, is shutting down on June 6th. This came kind of out of the blue. Uh, Kim, thoughts on this? And uh, do you have anybody using Clef? No, none of my people are using it. So I didn't have anything specific I had to go out and help people with. Uh, But just like you said, out of the blue, and what, over a million installs for the WordPress plugin? One million. That's, you know, that's a big deal. (laughs) It kind of is. Uh, I think part of it was they couldn't find a business model that worked. Um, so, you know, it's, no matter how big your plugin is, I mean, having a working business model is important. Um, you know, Sally, thought, thoughts on this? Uh, pretty much what she said. And, and yeah, the business model thing is, is tough. I remember a couple of years ago, Cliff offered to, to uh, come and present at our meetup and the timing didn't work out. But, uh, you know, they, they were everywhere and then suddenly, boom. And, you know, we've seen that happen uh, with a number of different uh, startups that, 
you know, they just kind of evaporate when they realized they had no plan to, you know, make money and, and cover the costs of providing their service. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, um, you know, in this story that we're reading, they, they did offer like commercial business plans. There's a thousand dollar a month plan, but they just couldn't get, you know, the money to uh, line up with, you know, what it was costing them, I guess. Um, it sounds like they're being, they are joining another company. So maybe they're being acquired. Um, you know, so hopefully it works out in some way. Jonathan, thoughts on uh, Clef shutting down? Well, you would have thought with a million users, you would have found someone making some money from it. You would think. But, you know, but I'll say that um, that's what you would have thought with um, Blab, wouldn't it? Um, but slightly different because you haven't got... Um, ever-growing bandwidth costs ever you, John, um, Pablo? No, true, true, true. Um, so definitely, um, you know, so the moral of the story is, is like, make sure you have a business model. It does sound like, you know, maybe they found an exit and it does sound like maybe they're being acquired at least. So, you know, but the service itself, it's, it's, it's kind of not good to, to have to shut down when a million people have it installed. Um, do you do you use it at all? I don't think any of my client. I do um, have one or two clients that are on Clef. Uh, they're kind of smaller um, people, not anybody like huge on it right now. Um, it was it did seem like a really good product. I mean, from what I saw, um, and it did solve like some of the two factor authentication. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a shame. So there are some alternatives. Uh, that they they are trying to transition people to, and that would be uh, a plugin called Two Factor. Uh, there's another one, uh, Authy, which is a service, and a Google Authenticator, uh, which I recommend. I've, I've set that up for people before, so that's definitely one that I would recommend. Uh, the second news story today is uh, the we've talked about this on the show before: WordPress collaborative editing. Um, this comes directly from Matt Mullenweg's blog. So there, it looks like they're basically uh, moving forward with trying to integrate like Google Docs. Um, th there's a plugin that you can install that's from Automatic that will allow you to collaborate collaboratively edit uh, a Google Doc and then import that into WordPress.com. So that would, you know, that's a big step forward. Um, you know, Kim, thoughts on this? You know, how will this change, uh, you know, the content process? Well, I, I didn't get to read it till this morning, oh, okay. but I'm really looking forward to trying it because, you know, it said it will bring everything in from your doc with the links and everything like that, which, you know, that's something my students a lot of times have a problem with trying to create different things and then get it moved into WordPress and then they lose everything and then they have to go back and reformat from scratch. And um, so I'm excited to see it in action, but I unfortunately did not get to test anything. Yeah, I haven't tested it. I, this is something I actually just read like the other day. Um, it does seem like it's very promising because I, I think, and we've touched on it several times, is, is one of the biggest things that has been a problem with WordPress you know, it up to now is the fact that the editor 
it doesn't like reflect what you're really seeing like on the finished page. And a lot of that has to do with just different themes, just different, you know, things that influence like what you see. But this seems like a way to make it easy for other people to collaborate. Uh, Sally, thoughts on this? And are you looking forward to to them working on the editor and, and coming up with more innovations like this? I'm definitely looking forward to more work on the editor. Um, I def- I know people for whom this will be uh, great because they do most of their work in Google Docs and, you know, because it needs to have a, a couple of people's input on it. And, and, you know, they've run into, I remember explaining to one of these people about how, you know, the reason that you get double spaces between everything when you paste from Google Docs into WordPress is because Google Docs, is making real paragraphs, but you can't see that unless you tell Google Docs to actually display space between those paragraphs. Uh, and so you end up making an extra space and then there's too much space between, you know. And, and so I think that, you know, having a, a way to, to smooth that workflow out will be helpful for people. Uh, I was going to try it and I ran into the issue that Matt mentions about how if you happen to be signed into one Google account and want to sign out and, and you know, add it to a different one, it, it, it is a little awkward to, to set up. So I need to kind of go back and uh, try it again. Um, I don't do most of my own writing in, in Google Docs, so I don't know, you know how much I'd use it. Uh, personally, I mean, you know, ever, ever since WordPress actually got good at handling stuff you paste in from, from Microsoft Word, uh, you know, that, that improved life a lot for me. Um, I think this is a, you know, this is going to be useful for a lot of, uh, a, a lot of content creators. No, I agree. Um, I, I think it will be easier for like a lot of, of people creating content. I, I do remember a lot of the pain. I mean, there is still that sometimes um, when you're copying and pasting from Microsoft Word, but um, something you touched on is true is is you can edit it and you're going by what you see on the page. You're not really looking at, you know, the source code or anything like that. And so, you know, Microsoft Word and, and WordPress and, and, and uh, Google Docs, like handling like paragraphs differently, that, that's kind of a challenge. But this should make it easier to where there's one place where you can set things up. And instead of copying and pasting from Word, you could just do it from a uh, uh, Google Doc. And uh, yeah, so in this also works not only on WordPress.com, any site that's connected to Jetpack. Uh, Jonathan, thoughts on this story? Well, I fully, mm, um, I fully had good parts, like what the other panelists have said. You know, um, I do use a mixture of Word and Google Docs, so I'm a bit of a hybrid. Um, what interests me in the article was, and it might be just my impression, I'd be really interested in seeing what you think, John, and the other panellists, is I got the impression that Matt was referring that this could be continued, and this is the real direction where the improvements in the editor should be focused. And it really had a tone of blogging and he has a history I feel if you look at his previous posts around this subject 
that's how he sees the improvements in the editor being. But I think there's also there's a lot of people that want the editor to be more like Beaver Builder in some ways. And I'm in the middle with Jackie. I, I don't think it should be a full page builder, but it should be a lot more than I, and I won't be totally wrong here, sense what Matt thinks it should be. Yeah, definitely. That's something they're focusing on, and I think it's long overdue. I, I think that they... Um, the, the WordPress Foundation is really committing this year to kind of improve user experience and just the overall, um, you know, editing flow. And, and they need to be able to do that to compete with some of the other solutions that are out there, such as Squarespace yeah. or Wix. Or, you, know, you would have thought so, wouldn't you? So those commercials would really push you in more so it becomes much more competitive but I just got a sense from the article he doesn't really quite see that but I won't be totally wrong on well my impression was that what he's saying is basically you know he says this is complementary to the work that we're doing with the new editor in in core and uh, you know, he says, with the new WordPress editor, the blocks will be all about bringing together da 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 da. So it's it's not like oh, we're not going to bother with the with yeah. making the new editor. It's more what he says is you know because Google is so far ahead in the collaborative editing department that he's kind of suggesting that if you want to do the collaboration, you know, first of all, since it's all working in Google, you can now do it now instead of waiting for the new editor to, to come out. And second, it might be kind of reinventing the wheel to try to put all the collaborative stuff into the WordPress editor itself. Um, but I think we're, you know, I don't think we should take that to, to mean that, you know, we're not going to try to improve the editor experience actually inside of WordPress. Nope, agree. All very good points. Um, our third news story is by someone we've had as a guest before, Josh Pollock. And this one comes from Torque.io, uh, getting the most out of a freemium WordPress business model. Now, um, you know, Josh, he, he uh, is lead developer over at Caldera Forms. And um, there's a lot of form building plugins out there, but uh, this was really about his uh, kind of journey of, of having a freemium uh, type of plugin where you have a free plugin that's in the WordPress plugin repository where people can just download it for free, but having uh, some sort of upsell or, or premium model to it. And some of the things that he discussed was he tried to follow um, the example of the Yoast plugin. They have a very popular free plugin. They also have a premium one, but uh, a lot of it is just figuring out how to make money at this. Um, Kim, uh, thoughts on this article? Um, I mean, he had great points. I, I've not done a freemium model, but I took, I loved his thoughts on support where he talked about, you know, people's expectations of support, even on a free plugin and, uh, what level you can actually give when you're doing something for free versus when you had to go into that paid support model. It sounds like they worked the balance out really well from the way he talked about it. But I really, it, he really brought home that, hey, even when you're doing this for free, people are expecting that. 
really good logistics on that too. Like put the link to your documentation. If you want people to go read the documentation, put it into the WordPress support forum when people ask because they're likely to outrank you on searches than, you know, than um, your site. So I thought he just had some really good logistics and um, maybe Clef would have benefited from this a while ago. <laughs> possibly, possibly. <laughs> Sally, Sally, thoughts on this? Right. Um, well, it, you know, it's, it's interesting. It, it, you know, I got the impression that, you know, they made the mistake of making their free product too good. Uh, that, you know, they focused a lot on, we want to make sure that the free product is valuable. That will help, you know, people will use it. It would, you know, people, but the thing is, if your free product is that valuable as it is to everybody or to a, you know, very large proportion of people, there's almost no incentive to upgrade. You know, I use a plugin called anti-spam everywhere and occasionally it sends me a fairly polite notice about, you know, it's blocked this many spam comments and I might want to look at the, the pro version, except why it works perfectly uh, for what I need it for as it is. And so, you know, that's the problem is you're not going to get very many conversions. And, and, you know, I recently tried Caldera Forms for the first time and it's gorgeous. It's, it's, I like it a lot, but yeah, I, you know, I was putting it on sites where I needed a relatively simple form that you know was going to be fairly easy to to set up fairly easy to style and and you know but didn't need a, a a whole lot of options so it's a you know i think it's it's finding that balance and you know um paid or free support is the most expensive part of creating a, a, a plugin because your development time you know that that's time but it's not time like the support time especially if you are building something for, you know, that's really aimed at, at end users. I've, I've heard Brad Tuinard say, you know, there's very little support demand on something like Migrate DB Pro because it's for developers. And, you know, they, they tend to have one or two questions and then they've got it and it, it just, you know, but when you're, when you're building something for, for people who don't know very much about how to use it, there's just going to be a lot more support questions, even if you've built the product well. No, that's a great point. Like the, the, the honestly, the big things are the development and uh, the support. And the support really can, even for a free plugin, uh, and maybe especially for a free plugin because so many people are using it, the support can really chew up a lot of uh, you know your time resources. Somebody has to be answering those questions, um, and you know, it's, it's really difficult. So, you know, getting to profitability is very important. Uh, Jonathan, any thoughts on this article? I just thought, I just thought we had some really nice points, which Kim pointed out. It was, um, we had some nice insults. It, 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 it oops, somebody wants Hello? us. Yep. Somebody, <laughs> um, but um, it had some nice points, and uh, I think sadly this balance, because being in the um, depository has enormous benefits, and having something that's really crippled really peeves people off, doesn't it, John? But if you are over, um, if if it's so good, what what reason is there to buy a premium version? But I think, the good, I think the good news is that there's a lot of um, people in the form 
sector, which um, through additional plugins, there's a lot of traction. There's a lot of ways to take this, isn't there, John? Yeah, I mean, there's infinite ways that you can go through and and have a sort of freemium model. Um, you know, he mentions Pip and Williamson and Easy Digital Downloads. They, uh, like a lot of people, they have uh, add-ons. Like Easy Digital Downloads is free, but there's add-ons that, that are very useful to use that, that solve a lot of tricky situations that you'll encounter. Uh, I don't know if you agree with this. Yeah. Uh, I might be totally um, bonkers here, John. But if I was them, uh, after hearing what Chris... Um, Liamer said on when he came on the show about he sees the real enormous growth being in the e-commerce section. I would really aim their products to have a lot of elements that really work deliciously with WooCommerce and really aim their form as the kind of integration in with WooCommerce. What would you say to that, John? Well, I would say that, you know, you could look at something. Um, I, I, I would definitely look at it, something like Gravity Forms where they have ways that you can connect WooCommerce uh, either through like their third-party plugin system uh, or through some of their uh, add-ons. You can basically like make, uh, extend like WooCommerce. Um, I've had different projects where I've used that. So definitely that is a direction that you can go. Now, if you could make it like dead simple for people to um, <clears throat> add different things to a form that works like with something like WooCommerce, then I think you are um, sitting on a potential gold mine because I think there are a lot, there are still a lot of people like entering the WordPress development space they're setting up sites for people who are trying to figure out solutions. And if they could figure out, um, if they could introduce products, any like form building thing, where you could introduce products that work with another popular plugin to, to help make their clients make money, then that is money for you. Um, you know, from there, it's just like, you know, publicizing it. Um, so definitely add-ons is one way. A freemium model is one way. Um, to you know, make it the, the big thing is covering support, covering developmental time. One piece of advice that uh, Josh offers here is to work backwards from your goal, and and I'd like to get the uh, you know panel thoughts on this. But he says that um, if you figure up like how much it's going to cost you in development and support, and then you figure out like how many people you can potentially get to use it. You kind of do the math on it and figure out like um, what to charge. Um, you know, uh, any any thoughts on that? I think it's uh, <clears throat> good that they're actually sort of taking thought for how much they need to to, to cover and and uh, review because you know it seems like most people are just kind of like oh we'll pick a number out of a hat and and uh, or you know we'll see what maybe other people are charging and and we'll try charging that and then it turns out that it's uh, you know that they they could have charged more or they you know that they're really not making enough. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it's important to figure out, uh, you know, how much, uh, what, what the minimum is that you need to make. 
uh, and you shouldn't necessarily let that uh, limit you, but you don't want to get below there. Nope, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we've we're it's about time for the break, and then when we come back, we're going to add one more person to our conversation, and we're going to be talking our main topic, uh, you know, planning for large scale projects. And we'll see you after the break. Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30 day money back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's WP Tonic.com. Just like the podcast. Right. We're coming back from the break. We're talking our main topic today, which is planning large scale web projects and we're going to add one more person to the mix christopher introduce yourself uh tell everybody who you are morning everybody my name is christopher hawkins and i run kojian systems we're a custom web development agency out here in central california and uh as of the last couple of years we are now a member of the wordpress ecosystem yay (laughs) yeah as a matter of fact john i wanted to share this with you I, i think we just now became a real wordpress agency because we just turned down a job because it wasn't a WordPress job. I think that makes it official, man. Position. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's definitely official at that point. Right on. So uh, first question I'd like to, to ask the panel um, and and we'll, we'll just throw you in the mix. We'll just start right here. Uh, You know, how do you know when you've got like a large scale project versus, uh, you know, just a run in the mill, uh, type of project and and from there like what type of preparation do you start making Christopher? well um, I think the key element here as far as how do you know is experience um, as a young freelancer working on my own I would look at a given project I would scope it out I would do a little bit of a discovery and every once in a while I would find myself looking at something and radically underestimating the amount of work it was going to take Later on in my career, once I had a little more, little more gray in my beard, so to speak, I, I've gotten much better at nailing these things down. And the big thing is uh, the scale of the business will very often tell you a lot about the scale of the project. Small mom and pop shop type businesses, you, you can earn a great living servicing them. Odds are none of the projects that come across your desk from a business like that are going to be what you would call large. On the other hand, if you're servicing, say, uh, I don't know, some business that's uh, over 10 million a year, 20 million, 50 million. If you're servicing fortune 500s, I don't think they do anything small, uh, at least not in my experience. E- even the smallest projects can involve uh, levels of uh, administration. It can involve levels of decision-making. It can involve levels of support required from corporate IT that will take even a, a kind of a reasonable size project and inflate it into something that, Oh gee, this is bigger than me now. So the, the first kind of proxy variable is just look at the size of the organization. You can generally get a very gross sense of how big is this likely to be. The second thing is breaking it down into uh, just feature points. The the same way that you hopefully already break your projects down into granular, easy to understand, easy to estimate, 
like estimating is ever easy. Uh, easy to estimate bullet points. Um, not breaking things down small enough is probably the number one way I think freelancers get into trouble when it comes to determining, okay, is it this big or is it actually this big with tentacles? And there are other elements that the tentacles are touching that maybe I can't even see. It's, it, it's, it's all about feel at first, the general size. And then after that, it, it just comes down to diligence. How far can I break this down? How many questions can I ask? How many answers is the business willing to give me? If the business isn't willing to give you questions, uh, answers to your questions, it's going to be tough to kind of flesh out that scope. Definitely. Kim, what is, you know, your um, methodology for uh, attacking like a large scale product? Does that begin in discovery or, or where does that start? Well, it definitely begins in discovery. And at this point in my life, almost much of what I do has the propensity to become large scale because I agree with everything Christopher said. And even a mom and pop shop, when they're doing what I do, building membership sites and building online platforms, you know, that can become large scale, even though it may be, uh, I'm finishing a, a project with someone right now. It's two people as far as the business, but they've got a few hundred members. They're trying to grow that. They're putting out a lot of content for those members and having to support those members. You know, like we talked about with support with plugins, if you're running membership and learning platforms, you've got support. So those can quickly become fairly large platforms and projects, even though it may not be a $10 million a year company. No, definitely. Uh, there's many factors that can make uh, a project large and more complex. Sally, I know not that long ago you wrapped up a, a pretty complex and pretty detailed uh, project. Uh, you know, what were some things that you took away from that? And, and you know, what, how are some ways that, that you would uh, attack a project like that in the future? Oh, there are definitely things I would do differently uh, doing it <clears throat> again, because, you know, at, at first uh, look and the, the sort of initial description from the, the person who hired me, who was their new um, VP of marketing um, was, you know, okay, so it's like, it's, it's just our, it, it, it's just the marketing site. You look at the site, init your initial impression is that it's, you know, relatively straightforward. Um, it doesn't seem to be that <clears throat> complicated, but then you start digging into things with the content of it and you realize like you keep uncovering stuff that not only are there, um, you know, 800 um, blog posts that all have the most like appalling mishmash of, of uh, categories and tags. And yes, we're being, <coughs> Christopher, this is BC. Uh, nice. She she has attention deficit disorder. She thinks there is not enough attention in the world for her. Um <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, and you realize, oh, look, there's this like whole hidden collection of a certain like completely different post type that, that you know, you get to from here. And, and there's all this, you know, there are all these layers that, that we didn't see. And there are all these, you know, as we look at the content, we realized, oh, we need a whole bunch of like new post types and new taxonomies and new relationships. And then on top of that, we need new layouts. And then, oh, we have to handle all the... Uh, uh, you know, the, the guest authors and the, you know, so it, it, the, the scale revealed itself. And, and this is certainly one good reason for doing a, 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 you know, a thorough content audit in, a, in addition to 
discovery about, you know, I mean, I talked to them about, you know, their goals and their, their you know, what the existing site wasn't doing for them that they needed and, and those things. But I still had no clue really how big a project it was when I started and, and they wanted to... Uh, uh, you know, they really wanted to just jump in. No, no, this, I've worked with you before, uh, you know, on a project that was like for a startup that had like no content yet or, you know, much money. So I'm happy to pay your hourly rate. Yeah, I have a new car now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, I worked my butt off for it, but, uh, it, you know, it, it was, uh, it turned out to be a lot of money. And I realized as, as we got into it, oh, this is way too big for me. I mean, we already had a designer and we had, uh, you know, there are people on their team who were responsible for sort of new content creation and, and stuff, but they also had like other things to do. So I ended up hiring a, a person just to do the, the front end CSS stuff uh, so I could concentrate on the PHP and I ended up with, a, with hiring a whole bunch of people to help with the content export and import because they had this structure of the, the way their old site was published this was like a hastily constructed kitten will you stop making my screen go away um, <clears throat> Uh, one of their DevOps team had, they, they do mobile security software. One of their DevOps team had built this like flat file CMS and converted their old WordPress site from it into that when the company changed its name and then a bunch of stuff was lost in that import. Plus it was just like kind of a mess to do. So you couldn't use like sort of standard export and import things. It was a huge production getting the content imported and then having all the like new categories and tags and post types and this and that uh, updated. So I hired this huge team of people to just go over the Excel sheet so I could do that, you know, uh, uh, all import um, things with it. And so, yeah, uh, there's, you know, if I, you know, and the next time I saw a project that I could, could tell was going to be a similar level of complexity. I said right away to the person who had inquired about it, you know, this is basically, you know, a $50,000 project that, you know, appropriately would need several people. And, and you've just told me that these people have like a, <clears throat> you know, a, a $10,000 budget and they've already promised 5,000 to the designer and, you know, what needs doing can't be done for that money. Uh, so, it, you know, and I learned and next time, first of all, I would hire a project manager, uh, you know, and, and second, I would bring on, you know, extra team members uh, from the start. To, and so, uh, you know, once, as you were saying, pretty much once you've done it, you start to know the signs uh, that something is, is going to be big like that. Jonathan. Um I know that you've had like large scale uh, projects in the past before. Uh, how do you uh, break those down and, and uh, you know, what's your plan of attack for, for handling those when you realize you've got something big? Well, it's a mixture of what Sally and Christopher says, you know, um, I think like, I've, done about three really large projects over $60,000. One was about over $100,000 where I was the project manager. And that went on, my God, that went over a year. At the end, I just wanted it finished. Um, there's a tendency 
for obvious reasons for things to go the way Sally just explained. Um, especially when the client has no idea this is a lot more complex that, than what they think. Um, ideally, what Christopher uh, said is the ideal... Um, I think a lot of this is also down to doing paid discovery, isn't it, John? Um, especially anything that seems to be out of the norm. And I've never discovered that norm with most of the projects that I've been... Or the people I've been involved with... Um, oh, I'm kind of going to repeat my now self. Also, really understanding the drivers, I've realised with a lot of reflection, not understanding the drivers and the real re. It's not always what seems to be the drivers of the project. Sometimes aren't, John. No, I, I think you're absolutely right, and uh, you know, doing a discovery phase is is so vital. Uh, and something I want to ask Chris is when you, you know, you're looking at a, a big project, uh, you know, what type of discovery is it, you know, more intensive than it would be for maybe just a straightforward marketing site? And, uh, you know, what types of things are you looking for? And if you have a big project, do you break it into stages or just do it all at once? Wow, that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's a lot to unpack. I'll, I'll take it one thing at a time. I sure. think um, I think very much like Sally said, it's important to, to kind of recognize when you're outside of your own expertise mm -hmm. and bring people in. Um, when she was talking about all the custom taxonomy stuff, my eyes were glazing over. That's the point at which I reach out and I plug one of my merry band of mercenaries into a project <laughs> and focus on, focus on what I'm good at uh, so that I don't foul things up. But uh, in the very beginning with discovery, it's odd because having a paid discovery session will give you a completely different set of data than doing a free one-hour consultation will give you. And the reason why is because, number one, that big fat check that they cut to cover the cost of the discovery session, the client is invested. They're determined to make sure they get their money's worth. With a free consultation, my experience has been that clients are they are pretty happy giving glib vague, detail-free answers because there's nothing on the line for them. And, you know, us being the experts, we sometimes aren't able to impart to them how important it is. No, 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 we really do need that extra level of detail. It's a very casual process when there's no money involved. So simply having a paid discovery session will, will just magically yield better results. Number two, I find that although we want to get a good view of as much detail as possible, I find that one of the, the first things to set an expectation on with the discovery process is to involve the smallest number of people, the smallest number of stakeholders that it's possible to have. Now, this isn't to say that we leave people out of the process who rightfully should be part of it. It's more to say that we pick exactly the right group of people. Otherwise, here's an example. I had a client, they had an, an, open, an open door design policy. Whenever they were designing a new project or a new product, Everybody was invited to the session. The janitor, the receptionist, um, the, the, the guy that works down in the basement and, and, and administrates the Unix server. Everyone. People who are absolutely not stakeholders. Everyone. 
and I, I walk into this discovery session and there's 35 people in the room, 35. Okay. And we, we were building basically a process automation app. They were still doing some of their work on paper. They wanted to digitize that workflow, get it on the network and, and make it, you know, shareable and collaborative. It, it was just too much. It was completely unwieldy. Uh, here's the other way. I once walked into a discovery session with exactly one other person not good enough. No, no, no. You know, you need the one manager level person. You need the user level person. You need a person who, you know, represents the customer viewpoint. Usually I find the sweet spot is about five or six people, no matter how big the project is. I, I've done uh, like Jonathan's hundred thousand dollar project. I've done projects like that. And guess what? The sweet spot for discovery was six people. It, it, that seems to be pretty consistent. So I would say that one of the, uh, one of the things to look for early is to make sure that you're getting the right people in the room and that you're not getting too many people in the room, that you're not getting too much noise, uh, so much so that it's hard to discern the signal. Uh, number three, as I said before, questions, questions, questions. My clients, I drive them crazy with my Socratic questioning. Oh, you want X? Okay, why do you want that? Okay, why do you want that? Okay, how do you think you're going to get that? Okay, what if you get this instead? I mean, I, I really drive them nuts, but in the end, we end up with a discovery document that's just on the right side of the 80-20 rule. And that brings me to my next point. The other big thing about discovery is that we don't have to discover everything today. There's, I, I, I'm a strong believer in the 80-20 rule. If, if, as I look at my own business and I look at my own career over the last 20 years, there's a sweet spot where you've got sufficient detail to proceed. You've got sufficient detail to cover the most pressing business needs and anything more than that will only serve to drive the discussion further afield, um, encourage the people who, you know, snuck into the discovery session when they shouldn't be there. And now they want to talk about what shade of cornflower blue the submit button should be. And to, to make sure that even if you don't gather another bit of detail, you can still deliver a product that's going to mostly do what it needs to do. And then from there, you can iterate a little bit. Th those are the those are kind of the big overarching uh, driving factors behind a discovery session when I do one. Was I on mute? Did I say all that on mute? No. Okay. No, I was no, on you're mute. You've, you've, <laughs> you've, you've just struck everyone dumb with your brilliance. Uh, I like her. Why haven't you introduced me to her before? This is great. This is great. <laughs> Definitely. Here's a so I want to ask him. You know, when it when it comes to you know maybe breaking things into chunks, uh, you know, how do you uh, approach projects where uh, things are kind of incremental? Uh, you know, breaking things into phases. How do you determine? Um, Let's say if a client has like three major things that need to be done, but you know they don't want to do them or they can't do them all at once. Uh, how do you determine like? Uh, you know, what buckets like each of those phases goes into? Well, since I don't do client work anymore, uh, I just do the training and coaching. Cool. A lot of it actually is building the project management for them on, on where they are going to develop it. So, uh, for example, if we're building a learning platform, we usually have to start with, okay, you're going to have to build your website first. Um, it's a separate website. I do not recommend doing it on your main marketing site. It should be a subdomain. So they're going to have to start fresh with that. We build out. I have a very detailed guide for them to go through and plan it. And, you know, assuming that it's probably not just one class, 
what class comes first and then how do we lay out that curriculum and what has to be done. And I have to say, you know, my years in IT doing IT type project management come in very handy during this type of session. And, um, and then once we get it laid out, then it, then it comes to which of my classes do they need to take to learn what they need to do to actually get it, get it built over time. Very good. Uh, Sally, uh, when it comes to communication, like on a large project, uh, how important is that? How do, uh, how do you kind of handle the communication between stakeholders and uh, people who are on the team? Well, <clears throat> what we did uh, with the Now Secure uh, project was there, there were sort of three channels for communication. There was a, there was a part of their Slack uh, team. They had a, they had a Slack channel for the website project. We had um, a base camp set up and uh, you know, where we tried to keep everything that we were going to have to like go back to and find. And, and so it's just cause Slack is, you know, good for talking and not so good for organizing anything. Um and we had these weekly check-in calls uh, by video conference at 8 a.m. Because uh, the client was in Chicago and then my, my front-end guy was in Florida. And, and so, yeah, for those of us who were in California, it was early in the morning. And, you know, at first we tried to get by without those calls. And then we realized it's too hard to keep up with where we are and be sure everybody is on track and that, you know, and that even if I'm trying to put reports into Basecamp, it's like, you know, I, I, I try to like, you know, give pretty detailed updates of what I've done at any given time, but you know, people get to the, Oh my God, it's that long. I'm not going to read it. Um, and so just having that call where we say, okay, here's, you know, here's what I'm working on. You know, I'm stuck with this. I need X from you. Uh, is, you know, or, you know, there's, you know, such and such is, is where the point of urgency is, or do we have to make a decision about, you know, what we're going to postpone to another phase in order to get our minimum viable product launched in time? And that was extremely helpful. And, and it, you know, the call was, was often less than half an hour. Uh, and it, it really, uh, it really made a huge difference uh, to do that and to, to keep up. I think probably the, the, the bigger the project and the more moving parts it has, the more important it is to have a, a communication loop and to know, you know, and to be clear about who is in charge of what, so that you don't have to blast everybody with a question about one specific area that, you know, I know I talked to this person about the, you know, lead gen stuff and the in integration with um, Marketo and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And I talked to this person about, uh, you know, certain assets and, and you know, this person is, is going to make the decision or needs to check with, you know, whoever to, you know, to get a decision on a certain thing. Um, so it, it's important to have all that worked out and to stay on top of it. And, uh, you know, I think maybe if we'd had a project manager who was like hurting all of us, uh, that we might've done without the calls, but I, I found the calls very helpful. And, and apart from the early hour of the morning, uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it, it was much more convenience than an inconvenience. So here's a follow-up question. I'd like to ask everyone this as well, everyone in the, in the room. When it comes to project management, um, is it easier on those larger projects to kind of break things into, you know, kind of uh, here's like the overview details and here's like the smaller details. Here's who it's assigned to 
and uh, you know, like here's like a deadline for getting it done and then do those check-ins using like some sort of project management software, some sort of detailer, but you know, Sally, what's, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's easier to have it than not to have it. Cause I can't keep all that sort of stuff in my head and I, I don't really know other, other people who can. Um, and Basecamp is a, a tool which is not ideal, but it does work in terms of, you know, assigning to, to do's and, and then, you know, being able to nag people about them and, and having it fairly clear, you know, who's, who's responsible for what. Um, I do think that on a large project, you really want someone whose only job is project management. I ended up doing a lot of the project management and it is time consuming and brain consuming and it's critical to do it. Somebody has to do it or nothing's going to happen. But, you know, it took a lot of time that I would rather have spent on development work because uh, that was supposed to be my job. Uh, yeah, definitely. Jonathan, thoughts on project management, uh, breaking things into chunks, breaking things into details, uh, experiences with that, thoughts on that? Well, it really, also it really depends on the experience of the client. Have they done this pony ride before? Or, uh, or what are their expectations? Are their expectations totally unrealistic on i you know we're giving you money and we don't expect us to have to do anything you you know um is it those kind of expectations you're dealing with if that's the case you've got to deal with that pretty rapidly haven't you because that's that's goo goo land stuff isn't it's trump world isn't it Uh, um (laughs) <laughs> you know, facts don't facts don't matter anymore. Uh, um, basically, so you got you know you might be dealing with that. Um, I totally agree. If it's any kind of size project, somebody's got to be really the project manager, the driver. Um, you know, I was literally making gun signs to my head as Christopher was describing his 35 expert panel design panel that he was dealing with um i've not quite been there but i've had um um i've had uh proofs um written and you know signed off on and then suddenly I've had a meeting with a CEO and he's brought in his print designer saying, well, we've decided we wanted a more rock and roll look. And you know you're starting down a road, don't you, John? No, definitely. That's uh, something you want to avoid. Uh, Christopher, when it comes to, you know, like project management and breaking things into details, breaking things into chunks like that, um, uh, what's your thoughts on that? Is is that the best way to, uh, you know, actually dispense the work? Is to break it into the most molecular pieces possible? I I definitely think that much like when you're designing a database, you, you want your project to be as atomic as it can be. Uh, no, I take that back. You want it to be as atomic as you need it to be. Um, we can certainly split hairs and 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 make everything much more fine grained than it needs to be. But again, and this is a function of experience, it it just comes down to a sense of when you've reached a a level of manageable granularity. 
Um, I, and when you asked the question initially, you asked if it was easier with a large project. And I think it is for two reasons. Number one, with a large project, you're under no illusion. Once you, once you understand the general scope of the project, you're under no illusion. This must get broken down. It must, or else I won't be able to do it. My team won't be able to, it's just too much for any one person to get their hands around on a smaller project, say a, a brochure site for a local pizza parlor. Okay. They just vomit their requirements out on you. And no matter what those requirements are, unless you're working with something highly scalable like Kim's membership sites, it's it's going to be manageable. You, you can maybe not break that down. You can maybe take the Word document that they send you with screenshots in it and maybe just work from that. But on a large project, there's absolutely no way. And you know that going in. You know that going in. I cannot handle this as is. Um, breaking things down is it's time consuming. It's laborious. You should be paid for it in the form of paid discovery. And, and yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it is both easier on large projects and it's more indispensable. And, and the, the biggest, biggest, biggest factor during that whole process is don't frighten the client. Jonathan mentioned that some of the clients, uh, they haven't done these kind of projects before. Sally mentioned using Basecamp and, and it being not exactly ideal for project management. It's not. But I use Basecamp for the simple fact that it doesn't frighten the clients. If the clients are A, unused to doing a technical project in the first place, B, don't really feel technically savvy themselves and haven't had any experience to these kind of web-based project management tools, they're going to be freaking out. They're going to be anxious, and that means their attention is going to be directed at the wrong things. They're going to be directing their attention on the things that cause anxiety rather than on, than on the things that can create value. Basecamp is easy. No one is scared of Basecamp. Here, just type your comments in this big fat text area, just like you're posting on Facebook. Okay, I can do that. The anxiety is gone. Now they can focus on the questions you're asking them. Now they can focus on the things they want that are going to create value for their business. It, yes, I would like to have all sorts of little, you know, uh, type A, control freak, overachiever, stick up the backside, little details and, and, and dates on everything. Fine. I can work without that stuff as long as I have a calm client who's able to articulate what they need and is able to listen to what I'm telling them. It's worth it. Yeah, I think that I think that's great. I just want to point out is I think with everything we discussed, there's a sweet area. Yeah, you get some people say, "I hate meetings. I don't want a weekly meeting." Blah blah blah. Well, you do need meetings, um, but there's there can be a stage where having too many meetings actually are destructive you have meetings for the sake of meetings i've had some clients wanted meeting after meeting after meeting and after time i didn't even know why we were having the meeting um i've had people that didn't want to be we were so obvious we needed a meeting uh um so there's a sweet area there there's a sweet area utilizing some of these platforms that christopher's just denoted you know um you know there's also i've had clients hire clients that that there was a specific way they wanted to communicate that i had one person ceo they only ever wanted to communicate through text you know um <laughs> all sorts of stuff, aren't you? Yeah, that that's really when you gotta like kind of like lay some ground rules and and stuff like that, and 
And I think definitely like, you know, getting everybody in some sort of project management, whether it's like base camp or something else, just something where everyone can communicate. I think that's good because I think that's something that, that, that um, you know, everybody encounters at some point. We've encountered that. Uh, I've encountered that where uh, the, you know, the client or members of the client's team, maybe they uh, kind of get away from being in that project management. And so that communication is now, instead of in one central place, it's all over the place. And that's no good for anyone. Um, Kim, I want to ask you, um, when it comes to scaling, uh, you know, membership sites and, and uh you know, making those like very large, what are some things that, that, that people need to watch out for uh, when they're building like a large scale uh, membership site? The two main things are really to, to wrap their arms around what their hosting requirements are going to be. Because as you're growing users and they're in there and they're active, that, 300, that $3 a month thing is not going to work for you. And, and planning that out initially, maybe we start at a $10 a month plan, but you know, knowing you're going to have to go up. Also with, as you're adding users, as you're adding content, just the organization of that so that it's friendly for those new users coming in, that it's really the, the don't make me think principle yep. of, you know, right, let me get in and I want to find what I need and and, and that type of thing. So planning that. Now, having said that, I, you know, full disclosure, I am a project management geek. I love it. As soon as I start a project, I want to have everything broken down with a deadline date, who's responsible for it, and inter- any de- dependencies. Having said that, that's not, the, that's not the document I share with the client to keep them, like you said, from freaking out. Uh-huh. That's my document so that I can help them know, like say they've got a development team, that we're explaining to their development team exactly what they need to do and communicating it in a way that they can get it done the way I need it done. Like we're building two websites and one is a membership site does not mean give me multi-site, which just happened to me and I lost Uh-oh. my mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so, so in that case, I do like having it all there as well as with the as you grow plan, part of that, what you need to expect as far as your level of support to your members, your level of organization, and your level of hosting to keep the site from working at a crawl or not at all. Excellent. Uh, something I want to ask Sally uh, and maybe go around the room with this as well is when it comes to managing um, like a large scale project, there's usually like a timeline. There's like a, some sort of hard deadline uh, where you have to have things done. And then there's usually some sort of budget. How uh, do you manage like both of those things when it appears like maybe you might be getting over budget or behind? Well, I think it's a, a good idea if you think so, something is going to cost more. If it's sort of like, oh, in spite of the you know work we did to figure out what we needed, I've just discovered there's this huge thing here. You know, are we gonna? What are we gonna do with all these things? Are we gonna import them and, and preserve them? Are we gonna ditch them? Are we gonna you know, because you know it, it's going to take time and money to deal with it. And if you don't have the time or the money, 
then you need to make a decision to not deal with it. But you know, you're the client, you have to make that decision. I, I can't do it myself. It's, it's, it's better to not wait to spring the news on people that something is going to cost more. And it's better to have an alternative of like, okay, if we really don't have the time or the budget to do this, is it something we want to just skip? Is it something we want to, you know, postpone to phase two? If, you know, if we wait on doing it, what are the consequences? If we, if we, you know, don't do it at all, what are the consequences, um, you know, to, to help make it easy for the client to, to make a decision? And, and, you know, maybe there is money for something if they, you know, <clears throat> if they decide that it's really important to them to have it, they'll find a way to pay for it. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's uh, projects do sometimes it turn out to be, you know, even as, as much uh, research as you might do, there's something that can, is going to turn out to be more difficult and more complicated than you thought it was going to be. And so, you know, don't wait to the last minute to bring that up, you know, make it <clears throat> make a point of telling them as, as soon as possible to you know, to improve your chances of, of actually, you know, still meeting uh, your deadline or, or not missing it by a lot. Jonathan, when it comes to, to managing timeline and budget, uh, what, are, what are some good guidelines there? Well, I think like, like Christopher and Sally Brighton, Kim, breaking it down, um, obviously, um, if you're really breaking things down into a very low level, you probably don't want to show that to the client because they'll probably freak out a bit. It's a balance. It's just like it's a balance around the meetings. You know, giving enough information is probably helpful. Then overburdening probably isn't helpful. So that comes with experience and balance. Um, it's also linked to the drivers. I had one client, um, the driver became obvious halfway through the project. And what the driver was, was that they were going to do a presentation at a very prestigious business conference. And they wanted the project done before they spoke at the conference and they never told us that and we were told that by a junior and then it their actions became more clearer john at the time it was puzzling me why certain things were driven where it was obvious we needed to spend more time on those specific areas and we weren't and we were being driven down a path and I kind of went with it and then but we found out it was that the site the real driver was, was not the stated driver the driver was to have something ready and we could have done it if we had been told but we hadn't been told John that's definitely a live and learn situation um y yeah definitely uh christopher when it I'm, comes I'm, I'm drawing a terrible bit jerry <laughs> no i mean no, we, we, i mean experience comes from uh going through those situations and uh you know christopher when it comes to uh managing like timeline and budget on large projects you know what are, are some good uh pieces of advice 
Well, I, I'm going to have to reference something that Sally said with the, the client who had $50,000 worth of work and they had a $10,000 budget. It's really important that if it looks like things are heading that way, get it right out there. Um, and, and, and feel free to say it as bluntly as that. You have this much work and this much budget. At that point, we're going to be doing a, a little bit of what uh, Kim got into. We're either going to defer some things. We're going to flat deny some things. Um, we're going to descale some things if we can, make them smaller, make them fit under the budget. At a certain point, a client has got to make decisions. And there, there's two-way accountability going on with a project. It's not simply a matter of we're accountable for delivering the things we've scoped. The client is accountable for making the hard decisions when the things we've scoped don't match up with their business realities. Number two, uh, it, this is part of my onboarding process. Jonathan, you're giving me flashbacks. Um, I, I had several experiences like that before I finally wised up. And now part of my onboarding process for a new project is to explicitly act, ask, what are some of the external uh, pressures on this project? Do you have a trade show? Do you have a quarterly shareholder meeting? Do you have any kind of externality that is exerting pressure on this project that's impacting the date? Yes, no. If yes, great. Let's talk about what those are. Let's talk about their relative degree of importance. Uh, if we miss this one, is it okay if we make this one instead? Um, and very often they'll say no. And as in Jonathan's case, I'll find out halfway through the project that the answer is actually yes, but the person who was speaking to me didn't know it. So the third thing is for managing those sorts of things, you've got to make sure that you're talking to the real decision maker. You've got to make sure that you're talking to the person who is really aware of things, who is really in a position to dictate that, yes, it must be done by this trade show, but not that trade show. Yes, it must be done on this amount of money, not that amount of money. And then the third thing is, um, I like to reference pop culture things to my clients to make sure that they understand them because very often we use these metaphors for digital construction that, that, that just, just go you know right over their heads. I'll ask them at the start as part of the onboarding, have you ever watched an episode of Fixer Upper where they find asbestos in the walls and they talk about dipping into the contingency fund? Right. We may find asbestos in the walls of this project. You need to set aside a certain amount of money so that when we come to that point and we say, okay, you need this and you only have this much money, you've got somewhere to turn to get that extra funding. We don't just automatically start lopping off limbs. We don't automatically start deferring things to phase two. Sometimes it really is important to get the unexpected things in the phase now and get them done by that milestone. So I, I very often encourage my clients to, you know, maybe just just budget, you know, 15, 20% more to cover the unexpected. Sometimes they can, sometimes they cannot. When they can't, we deal with it. When they can, we have some place to turn when the project jog, jogs to the left. No, that's excellent advice. Uh, we got time for like one more rapid fire question. So I'm just going to go around the room and just ask everyone uh, just in a few sentences, what's, what's, your best general advice for tackling large-scale projects? Christopher. Uh, okay, to any freelancer or a small agency out there who is up against a large project, particularly if it's your first large project, my, my, my advice is this. Keep asking questions. Don't, don't give in to that geeky tendency to feel like, oh, I, I understand this. I'm a coder. I'm a marketer. I'm a designer. I've done all this stuff before. No, you haven't. No, you haven't, because by definition, no client uh, project is exactly like any other. Keep asking questions until you've gotten to a point 
where you just don't have any more questions to ask. Don't be afraid to annoy the client. If they don't understand why you're asking these questions, try to tie it back to the business value that they're going to derive from the project and the business value that they'll lose by not providing a sufficient level of detail. Excellent. Uh, Kim. Brilliant. Um, Keep the communications open with the client. No matter what you've got going on and what you're finding, if you're the one who stays out, not just asking questions, but letting them know what you're finding, like asbestos in the walls, it's better to just keep that out in the open. Because again, sometimes those geeky developers, their tendency is to disappear. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do, so they disappear, and you can tank a project on that based on you know clients' perception of where where you are, what are you doing, and well, I didn't know that when you finally do have to tell them. Excellent, Sally. Any any rapid fire advice for large projects? Sorry, I was muted. Uh, <clears throat> for large projects, uh, don't wait to bring other people in. Uh, you know, if, if you are one person and you realize this is a big project and they need it done like, you know, before next year, you're gonna need help. And so, you know, build up a network of people whose work you trust that, that you can bring in to help you. That's excellent advice. I, I think that's great. Uh, Jonathan, any rapid fire advice on large scale projects? Well, I just want to be fearful. I, I know that I, I've put some things forward where things have gone slightly wrong, but um, I think you've got to be realistic. A um, couple of resources. Um, I think our discussion with Jonathan Stark, I think it was episode 160 around value pricing. And one of the, I think one of the worst situations if you're um, somebody that's taken on a larger project is underpricing. It is pretty endemic in this industry. Um, you're going to get in a really bad situation. So maybe looking, it was a bit of eye opener for me, John, um, Jonathan Stark, and what he had to say about value pricing. Um, another one um, was our most recent interview with Emily Wright, because um, she describes taking on a larger project, doesn't she, John, uh, which was a university project, which was a larger project she normally takes, and it went really successful um, because the people the drivers, the reason why they were hiring Emily and her team were pretty straightforward, weren't they, John? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we all, you know, uh, expand into things that are that are greater than our comfort level. And so uh, I just want to, you know, share advice. A lot of, you know, what's already been uh, spoken, I agree with, but definitely when it comes to large projects, break it into to, to pieces. When you're looking at an enormous project, it seems overwhelming. But if you break things into components and chunks, it doesn't seem so overwhelming. And you're like, yeah, we can get this done. Uh, and definitely, like Sally said, don't be afraid to ask for help. Like Christopher and Kimbo said, uh, keep that communication open. Don't go dark. Be sure that you're talking with the stakeholders and the clients and also your team and, and make sure that uh, uh, you have a plan. Um, 
one other thing I want we'll link this up in show notes too. There's a resource that Sally shared with us. Uh, it's a discovery sheet from Gather Content, uh, which is a, a great product for getting uh, client content, which is often one of the things that, that holds up large projects from actually getting launched. Uh, so we'll, we'll link that up in show notes, uh, but we'll let everybody go around the room and uh, tell us how you can find you. Christopher, how do okay. we find you and anything you want to promote? Uh, well, uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm uh, Chris underscore Hawk, just how it's spelled. That's where I, I spend most of my uh, online promotional time. Uh, number two, I'm launching a new podcast in about 10 days called the 100K Freelancing Podcast. If you've got some traction as a freelancer, but you're not quite headed toward the next level, uh, come on the show, come to 100kfreelancing.com, join the early <laughs> interest list. I understand that we had a very intelligent and charming guest by the name of John Locke recently. Uh, oh, we might have, yeah. Yeah, when the show debuts on March 21st, you'll be able to hear him. And uh, that's about it. Those are the, so the two you're best not gonna, You're not going to invite me then? <laughs> Maybe I'm thinking about it. I'm 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 silently judging you right now to see if you're worthy. Uh, <laughs> there you go, uh, Kim. How do we find you? Anything you, you want to promote? Sorry. You can find me on Twitter at Kim Schivler, and you can find me on the web, howtobuildanonlinecourse.com and whitegloveweptraining.com. And I have some new programs that'll be rolling out, but you can find out about them there. Excellent, Sally. You can find me um, as at Sally Getch on Twitter, or my uh, website is wpfangirl.com. And uh, the latest article I have there is um, sorting out uh, uh, mail <coughs> exchange records on Cloudflare when you need to update them. Uh, and <clears throat> uh, if you can spell my name, you can find me everywhere. Oh, excellent. Uh, Jonathan, where do we find you and what do you want to promote? Oh, yeah, thanks, John. But before that, folks, please Twitter out that you appreciate Liquid Web sponsoring the show. They love um, some Twitters saying that. So if you can spare a moment, do that. Um, try come on the live shows. Um, we're trying to promote people to join us. Um, you've got any questions about WordPress? I'm sure our panel are up to answering anything, anything you might have to throw them at WordPress. Um, uh, so you can go to wp.it and what's oh, yes. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm stunned by what this action on this live show. Uh, there we go. How to get hold of me, folks? It's quite easy. Um, I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Denwood, or you can email me at Jonathan WP-tonic.com, and I will answer queries. That's how you can get hold of me, John. Excellent, and you can. At my website, which is lockdowndesign.com. The latest blog article up there is part 10 in my ongoing series on real world SEO. This time it's a 2000 word article looking at the title tag. Um, it, this series is going to go on for as many episodes as it takes to uh, just cover SEO. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm lockdown underscore, and you know, hit me up on my Facebook page. It's just uh, Facebook slash lockdowndesign.com, or lockdown design, I should say. Anyway, uh, for the WP Tonic, we want to say adios, Arriva Dirchi, Sayonara, peace out, Aloha. We out of here, and get your dose. 
Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.